Let me ask that you take your Bibles and turn. Someone reminded me last week that the page number is in the bulletin every week, so to page 1,119 if you have uh, using the Pew Bible in front of you. We always encourage you to have a copy of God's Word open as we read and study His Word together. We are in Romans chapter 4, towards the end of the chapter. You will remember, no doubt, that the great theme of this, uh, Paul's uh, most uh, important and certainly greatest and longest letter that he has written, uh, the great theme of this letter, of course, is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, or the good news of which Paul is not ashamed, a gospel that was promised beforehand through the prophets and speaks of a righteousness now revealed in Jesus Christ and received by faith alone. In order to highlight the beauty and glory of the gospel, Paul began Romans by showing how all of mankind, Jew and Gentile, and remember that is Paul's sort of universal division of all humanity, Jew or Gentile, all are guilty before God because of their sin. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The picture he paints early in Romans is a tragic one of darkness and rebellion, but a very fitting canvas upon which to set the jewel of God's grace as displayed in the gospel. The conclusion of all of this is that every single human being that has ever lived save one, our Lord Jesus Christ, is guilty before God and under his wrath and curse. And then beginning in chapter 3, verse 21, Paul begins to speak of this righteousness of God that he has spoken of before as something that is received by faith and apart from the works of the law. To Paul, all boasting then is excluded as Paul shows that God justifies or declares a person to be right in his sight, not by their doing good works, but by faith alone. And this faith does not in any way, he says, nullify the law of God, which itself is good, nor does it overthrow it. No, rather, he says, faith establishes the law because the one who is truly justified by grace and through faith is one who delights in the law of God and desires to please God in all that he does, never as a way of earning salvation, but as an expression of gratitude for all that God has done for us in Christ. Now that leads us to where we are tonight as we continue in chapter 4, where Paul really seals his argument. He really ends his argument here that uh, justification is really by faith alone and not by works of the law, by turning to look at Father Abraham as the sole chief example of his argument. Here's his reasoning. If I can, he says, show from the scriptures that Abraham was justified by God by faith and apart from the works of the law, then the case is closed. If it was true of Abraham, then it is true for all who like him believe the promises of God. And so would you stand as we read this passage again in Romans chapter 4, beginning in verse 13. I'm reading the whole section again because it is the, the whole of it that we're looking at, even though our focus will be in the center verses. Verse 13 of Romans 4, this is God's word. 
For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver when consider concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Thus far, the reading of God's word, all flesh is as the grass, all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flowers, they always fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Father, may your blessing be upon now the preaching and hearing of your word. May we give our attention to these things that our faith, which you have granted to us in your abounding grace to us, would be strengthened. And we pray this in in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Now, as we come to chapter 4, which, again, we're really looking at chapter 4, verse 16, really, through 22. As we come to chapter 4, we see the Apostle Paul making three very important arguments to prove his case regarding Abraham that he indeed was justified or declared to be right before God by faith alone and not by works of the law. Now, we know the law came some 430 years after Abraham's life, so the case may, on the surface at least, seem obvious. But Paul lays out these three arguments very carefully to persuade his readers and us that indeed Abraham was, as God declared, justified by faith alone. His first argument is in verses 1 through 8 that we studied before, and it's simply this. The Bible says so. The Bible says so. That is what God's word, the Bible, says. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. That's the end of the story R.C. Sproul once said regarding a very popular bumper sticker that he often saw, 
He said this, I've mentioned many times my reaction to the Christian bumper sticker, God says it, I believe it, that settles it. Huh? God says it, I believe it, now it's settled? No, if it's going, he says, to be a Christian statement, you need to say, God said it, that settles it. It doesn't matter whether you believe it or not. If it is God's word, beloved, it is settled. And this is what the psalmist understood. And he said, it has been settled in heaven from eternity. Paul's argument in those eight verses is, let us see what the scriptures say. And he quotes from, of course, the book of Genesis, where God says, God justified or Abraham was justified because of his faith and not by the works of the law. So the first argument, fairly straightforward, the Bible says so. That is what God declares. Paul's second argument in the brief section 9 through 12 is a little bit different. There were some who were arguing that circumcision being a sign of belonging to God's covenant family, the Jewish people, that that was really the mark that sets you apart. And it's circumcision, which is really, really important. And so some were saying maybe this promise of God is only for the circumcised. God gave it only to the Jews, and therefore it really is a work because the Jews obey God's commandment to be circumcised. And so after all, it's for the Jew only, and it's by their obedience that God justified Abraham. Abraham obeyed God's command. Many times he did, in fact. And in response, God justified him, and all who like him are circumcised. There's only one problem, Paul writes. What God said about Abraham took place at least 14 years, if not likely more, before Abraham was circumcised. The declaration that Abraham was justified by faith, that God counted it to him as righteousness, was made long before the circumcision was given. So circumcision becomes a sign and a seal, Paul argues, of the righteousness he already had by faith. And so it can't be circumcision, and it can't be only the Jews. In fact, he argues it's not only the Jews. It is for the Jews who, like Abraham, believe God, but it's also for those who walk in the way of Abraham in their footst his footsteps of faith, even Gentiles. Now that leads us to the final section in verses 13 through 25. And here I think Paul's argument is this, the nature of the promise, this is the first time that Paul deals with this question of the promise, the promise or promises that God made to Abraham, the nature of the promise demands that it be by faith alone and not by the works of the law. The last time we were together, we began to look at this section and we saw the ever-widening and expansive nature of God's promise to Abraham as it looked ultimately to Christ, the true seed of Abraham, and all that God would do in and through him, that is Jesus, the true heir of Abraham. Such a promise we noted in verse 13 was stated in this way, in a very striking way that he would be, Abraham would be the heir of the world, the heir of the world. 
So you may question and wonder, well, I, I thought the promise was for a particular piece of ground somewhere in the Middle East that was the focus of wars and rumors of wars and remains so even today in our generation. Wasn't that the promised land of Canaan that God had given to Abraham? But you see, Abraham knew better. We read from Hebrews chapter 11 that tells us that Abraham was not looking as he was a sojourner in the land of promise. He wasn't looking for a plot of ground. He wasn't looking for land. His faith, believing God, was looking far beyond that to a, a land, a building whose architect and builder is God himself, a heavenly country, not an earthly one. And so we see even in Abraham's life, the ever widening and expansive nature of God's promise. No such promise given by God to Abraham and who all, all like Abraham who would believe, no such promise could come through obedience to the law. We could never earn that. The riches and the fullness of the promise to Abraham as fulfilled every promise in Christ, yes and amen. None of that can be earned or worked for by works of the law. It has to rest, Paul says, on grace, he says that in verse 16, that is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace. It's all of God's grace and not of our works or our own efforts. The promise to Abraham was too great, too expansive beyond what Abraham even himself could have fully known or understood. It could never have come to him by works of obedience to the law, such a promise must rest on grace and be received only by faith. And so if that is true, and Paul has really made his argument clear in these verses, what he does next is to tell us if, if it was Abraham's faith that God counted as righteousness, the faith itself, as we well know, being the gift of God, if it was that faith, what was his faith like? What were the characteristics of his faith? What was the nature of his faith? Well, the Bible, of course, gives us lots of ideas of what true faith is, what Abraham's faith looked like. We heard it in Hebrews 11, and this language is going to sound very familiar to what we read here in Romans 4. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made of things that are visible. And without faith, the writer of Hebrews says, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Our own standards, the Westminster Larger Catechism asks this question, what is justifying faith? Justifying faith, we know, is a saving grace wrought in the heart of the sinner by the spirit and word of God, whereby he being convinced of his sin and misery and of the disability in himself and all creatures to recover him out of his lost condition, 
not only assents to the truth of the promise of the gospel, but receives and rests upon Christ and his righteousness, held forth for pardon of sin and for the accepting and accounting of his person, righteous in the sight of God for salvation. Now that sounds a lot like what Paul has been arguing, that this being found right and justified in God's presence is at the heart of the gospel, and that this righteousness which we receive is given to us as we receive it with faith and believe what God has promised. And so as we think about Abraham's faith, Paul talks specifically about his faith in these next verses. And there are four things tonight that I want to look at. The first is this, faith looks to the God who is. Faith looks to the God who is. True faith looks behind the promises to the God who makes the promises. We see that especially in verse 17, where the apostle Paul, as some commentators note, breaks into a doxology or ascription of praise to God for who he is. Look at what he says. He says, in the presence of the God in whom he believed, that is Abraham, the God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. This is the God who makes the promise to Abraham that you will be a father of many nations. In fact, in Genesis 17, God gives him a sign of this promise when he changes Abram's name from Abram to Abraham. No longer will your name be Abram, which means exalted or noble father, but now it will be Abraham, which means father of many or of many nations. You see, his faith was not in the promise, but in the God who made the promise. Genesis says in chapter 15, verse 6, he believed God, what God had said. And note how God is described again here, the one who gives life to the dead, who calls into existence the things that do not yet exist. This doxology that Paul is using here praises God as Abraham knew him to be. He knew that God was this kind of God. If there is anyone who could do what God had promised him, it would be the God who gives life to the dead and brings into existence the things that do not yet exist. That's what Abraham believed. That's where his faith was focused, on that God. When he gives a promise, he says to us, now remember, and he said to Abraham, remember who I am as I make this promise. I am the one who is able to do everything, all things, all my will. I did it in creation. I do it in bringing to life dead sinners. I created all things out of nothing, and I opened the barren womb. Abraham is about to experience these very truths in his own life because God alone, this God, is able to do all that he has promised, and only this God can do it. 
You may remember in our study of Isaiah, that great turning point in the book divided into two sections, chapter 1 through 39, chapters 40 through 66. In that chapter where everything changes, Isaiah 40, it begins this way. It's a promise, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. That was a promise of what God was going to do, ultimately what God would do in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Do you remember after that, the promise is given, what God then does for the benefit of the people who have heard this promise so that their faith might be strengthened? He tells through Isaiah the people who it is that's making the promise. Remember those glorious verses. To whom then will you compare me, he says, that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatest of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one of them is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not heard? Have you not known? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. This is our God who makes promises, and Abraham's faith, a mark of true faith, is that faith looks and rests in the God behind the promises and understands him to be someone who is able to accomplish everything that he has promised us. That's the first mark that we see here in these verses. The second is in verse 18, and faith here takes God at his word. Faith takes God at his word. In hope, he says, verse 18, in hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. Abraham's faith took God at his word, not only looking to God as the God who is, but as the God who has spoken to him. He is simply believing God for what he has said. Hebrews 6 puts it this way with regard to God speaking and making promises. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and I will multiply you. And so when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Faith takes God at his word. He gave his word, and all that is needed is faith to believe, because God cannot lie. Thirdly, faith remains, remains in the face of all that is contrary to it. This is the focus of the next verses, verse 19 and following. 
as Paul writes of Abraham's own experience. And he says his faith did not weaken when he considered or looked at his own body, which was as good as dead because he was a hundred years old. Or when he considered or looked at the barrenness of Sarah's womb, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. Faith remains steadfast in the face of all that is contrary to it. When everything appears just the opposite of what we would expect, when God makes a promise and nothing in reality lines up to it, Abraham's body is dead, Sarah's womb is barren, faith then remains steadfast because of the God who made the promise and the God who has spoken. There was surely nothing he could do, Abraham or Sarah, nothing at all that they could do to bring about what God had promised. It would not be through themselves. It was impossible. It had to be God. And so in the face of everything contrary to sense and reality with respect to the promise, faith remains because of the God who promised and the God who spoke. This week I was reading uh, several things back and forth through the week, and I was reminded of the great story, most of you know this, some of you know it far better than I do, of the hiding place. Corey Ten Boom, her sister Betsy, their father, who instilled in them a love for God and his word. Their father, Casper, was arrested after they were discovered to be hiding Jews in their home. He was put into prison. He would eventually die in that prison hospital. But when he was there among the prisoners, the story goes that he would continue to remind even those prisoners, sick like he was and on the verge of death, that the Lord's promises were like something of a hiding place to him, a place of safety and peace. These words would be remembered, of course, by Corey and Betsy throughout their time as they experienced harsh, horrible, unfathomable conditions in the concentration camp in which they were taken and where Betsy died. The root of it all for Casper, their father, was from Psalm 119. Surprise, surprise. The verses, so many of them we read this morning, but this one, verse 114, you are my hiding place and my shield. I hope in your word. It reminded them of other verses, Psalms, for instance, Psalm 91, he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. And I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust, one need only to think of their lives and what they experienced in this world at the hands of wicked, wicked men and understand that everything they were living, everywhere they looked was contrary to what faith was laying hold of. Everything was against God. God, how could you be a fortress? How could you be a place of safety and a shield for me if I'm sitting in this prison or concentration camp surrounded by these wicked men, people dying all around me, death itself everywhere around me. How could you be a hiding place? 
And yet they knew that very promise to be true for them in the midst of everything that was the opposite and contrary to their life in that moment, God was surely for them a hiding place, a shield, and a place of shelter. That's what faith does. It remains as it was true for Abraham as he looked at everything around him, his body, his wife's womb, and he said, this is impossible. Well, what is impossible for man is possible for God. Fourth, and building on this, and we see it in Abraham's life in the verses that follow, as we consider his faith in the face of all that is contrary, we read in verse 21, he became fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Faith then is fully convinced and acts. It acts, it puts into action. Faith is never without action. So faith here is fully convinced and acts. There was for Abraham an assurance of faith and actions to follow. I want to be delicate, delicate. I want to be cognizant of our mixed group here tonight of all ages. But let me say that faith being fully convinced must always act. One can only imagine that after so many years of barrenness and hopelessness, the last thing on their minds would have been to try again at 199 to have a baby. It would have been the last and probably one of the most painful things they could have ever considered. But you remember God visited them, three angels, one being the very pre-incarnate, most believed person of Jesus Christ, and told them that this time next year, they would have a son born to them. They laughed. Both of them laughed. Sarah's remembered as laughing. But they acted. They did their part. This was not a Holy Spirit will come upon you, Sarah, moment. It wasn't. It was by ordinary generation. Faith always calls for action in one way or another, putting into practice what God himself had promised. The book of James deals with that issue, not describing how God justifies, but speaking to the one and of the one who says he already has a justifying faith. And James says, faith without works is dead. It's dead. And then he uses Abraham as an example. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and they shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You know he's not contradicting Paul there. He's already talking to someone who has faith. And he's saying that Abraham demonstrated that he had justifying faith by obeying God and believing his promises. You see, that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Don't be confused. Paul is not, or James is not contradicting Paul. 
He's saying justifying faith shows itself to be true by works. It is never alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. And so this is Abraham's faith. This is what saving faith looks like in real life. And it is by this faith that God says Abraham was justified and not by the works of the law because such promises given to Abraham could have never been earned by any one of us, let alone Abraham. Now next week we'll end our study of chapter four as Paul reminds his readers and us here tonight that what God spoke to Abraham, it was counted to him was not written just for Abraham, but it was written for us as well. These traits, it seems, these marks, characteristics of Abraham's faith and of all who truly believe are worth remembering. In fact, I'm convinced that when you're facing whatever it is you're facing right now in your life, when your faith is being challenged, you find it perhaps failing, these characteristics are actually very helpful in the renewal of your faith. Our catechism says that uh, faith varies in individuals. Some individuals have very strong faith by the grace of God. Other individuals have a weaker faith, a more challenged faith, if you will, struggling faith. Nonetheless, a faith that looks to and rests in Jesus Christ. How do we strengthen our faith then? These these qualities, these ways in which Abraham's faith was demonstrated is a good reminder to us as well. You see, we need to look to the God who is. We need to remember that he is, as we just sang, the ancient of days, that he's worthy of our trust, that he is faithful in all of his ways. We need to remember that God. We need to meditate upon him and who he is to remind ourselves in the midst of the greatest struggles we face that there is a God who is greater than them all, over all of them, who is sovereign, who is majestic and glorious in all of his ways. We need to take God at his word. We need to stop trifling with the scriptures and simply reading them and forgetting them. We need to look at his word, receive his promises, believe them by God's grace, knowing that God cannot lie. God has never made a promise to you or to me, all of which are yes and amen in Jesus, that he will not fulfill because they're all fulfilled in Jesus Christ. We need to be reminded that he is faithful to what he has spoken. We need also to remember, as we're concerned about all that we see in this world and in our lives, that we need not be concerned about the things we cannot control, the things that seem around us to be contrary to everything God has spoken to us. But we must remember that over those things and in the midst and through them is a God whose promises are true and who will grant everything that he has promised to us. Again, the Ten Booms remind me of that as they lived in the midst of everything contrary to what it means to be safe and in a fortress and protected. That's exactly where they were and who they were in the midst of those terrible, terrible places because God 
remains true and faith remains strong in the face of all that is contrary. The grace of faith, our standards say, whereby the elect are enabled to believe to the saving of their souls is the work of the Spirit of Christ in their hearts and is ordinarily wrought by the ministry of the word, but it is also strengthened and increased by the sacraments and prayer, all the means of God's grace. And then finally, when we're struggling, we need to remember that faith, true faith, is fully convinced and always acts. Is your faith accompanied by action? Faith is never dormant in the scriptures. It's always active, always moving. It is a life lived out, rooted and grounded in his word and promises which find their fulfillment in Christ. So these characteristics of faith that were true of Abraham and us are worth remembering as we go through those times of struggle. But as we close, maybe there's someone here tonight, maybe more than one who would say, I don't, I don't even have faith, Pastor. I, I heard everything you said. I just, I don't even know if I have faith. Maybe you would even doubt that God could save someone like you. Well, history is filled with men and women far worse than you, far worse than me, people in whom God was pleased to work because only our God can do it. Only God can save the worst of sinners, of which I am chief and which everyone here who believes in Christ would say the same words. Only God can do that. That's what Abraham came to understand. And it all, it seems to me, finds its full expression in the early morning hours in a prison outside of, or in the city of Philippi. There you know the story well from Acts 16. A jailer had witnessed the supernatural deliverance of his prisoners that he was guarding. And you remember as he stood before them or knelt before Paul and Silas, he asked a question a question for all of history recorded from that day forward. Sir, he said, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? And the answer came, simply believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and all of your household. Only the God of grace that we serve can do that. For like Abraham, this jailer believed God the promises of God, the words spoken in the midst of all that was contrary around him. And he acted by God's grace. He believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. The same can be true of you tonight. If you've never trusted in Jesus, you've never come to that place. I would call you to simply believe the God who has spoken. If you believe in him, you will be saved. Let us pray. Father, faith, as we've discussed it tonight, is often something that is elusive to us as we seek to see it and understand it in our own lives. We often feel very weak in our faith. And yet you, the God who grants faith by the work of your grace, is the same God who nourishes and strengthens our faith as we look to you, our God, as we hear your words spoken and as we rest in all that you have promised. And so bless us as we leave this place.
As we move into this week, use us powerfully, we pray, in the lives of many around us, that we might demonstrate what it is to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and to be his follower. We pray that you would grant this for the sake of Christ in his name. Amen. Amen.